and welcome to Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast, where we talk all things collection development, reader's advisory, and reference right into your little ears. I'm Booklist's own Susan McGuire, your guide on this journey to bookish enlightenment. Over the course of my career, I've become obsessed with how non-reader's advisory staff can get up to speed on reader's advisory. RA is such a vital service, if for no other reason than you want people checking out those books that you spent all that money on, but it is much more than that. Reader's Advisory builds connections in the community, it models good reading habits, and also, look, it's just really fun to talk about books. The problem is, Reader's Advisory is a big job, and it's hard to learn when it's quote-unquote not your job and you've got other, more pressing responsibilities to deal with. Here's the thing. Everyone doesn't have to be the expert, but staff can be guided by an expert on ways to connect readers with books, whether directly or indirectly. In this episode, I spoke to one such expert on her successes and struggles with keeping her small library a place of great readers' advisory. Then, audio editor Heather Booth gives us some suggestions on how to find a good audiobook when a patron asks and suddenly you've forgotten every book that ever existed. Finally, Books for Youth's Maggie Regan and I chatted about what she's reading that's making her cry, but like in a good way. Here we go. Professional development is soups important for library staff, but finding the time and the funds is real tricky. Booklist webinars are a great way to squeeze some continuing education into your busy schedule. Each free one-hour webinar covers something staff can take right into their work. Like what? How's about picture books, or sci-fi and fantasy books, or craft books, or book group picks, or library management, or library reads? So many topics covered each in one convenient hour. Register to watch the webinar live, or to be notified when the video is up in the archives. All free! All just one hour! Perfect for those days when you only have enough time off the service desk to eat a sad sandwich in your office. Find upcoming webinars and archives at booklistonline.com webinars. Katie McLean Horner is the head of circulation and reference at the Lake Bluff Public Library here in Illinois. She's also the host of Book Riot's mystery and thriller podcast, Red or Dead, and the editor of their library newsletter, Check Your Shelf. That's not what we talked about, though. Instead, give a listen to our conversation about modeling good RA behavior for staff and how to sneak training in between phone calls at the desk. So, Katie McLean Horner, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. I was very honored to be asked to join in on this. Oh, my gosh. Well, get ready to be disappointed. No. We're going to get real. So let's talk really quickly. Can you give us a quick intro to Lake Bluff Public Library? You know, how big is it? What you do there? Stuff like that. Sure. So the Lake Bluff Public Library, we are in the northern part of Illinois, right along Lake Michigan. It's a very, very small town. We're about 6,000 people, I think. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really small. And so our library is equally small. We have about 20 people on staff when we are fully staffed, maybe 21, 22. And my, I mean, my current role at the library is head of circulation and reference, but of course, in a small library that also involves wearing lots of different hats. So yes, sure. lots, yeah, I have everyone listening is nodding along. Oh yeah. No, I've got collection development responsibilities. I, you know, I pitch in for programming. I do, I do all kinds of stuff. So we like to say that we are small yet mighty. <laughs> yes. Excellent. 
So I want to talk a little bit about circulation and reference being one entity. Is there sort of a division of labor there or is it just the same group of folks covering everything is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, well, I'm I'm laughing because because we are such a small library, literally everyone on staff, I mean, maybe with one or two exceptions, everyone on staff, including our director, works at least one two-hour shift at the desk during the week. Mm-hmm. So we, we, I have my department, which is but about four staff members, they are circulation reference, they're part-time, their only shifts are working at the desk, but everyone works at the desk in the, li- in the library. So it is, it's a small, but yet it is also a very large, a large department in a way. And yeah, and honestly, we have, we, everyone who is trained to work at the desk is trained to do both circulation and reference. And the, People who work reference, it's less to do about the actual staff member and more to do with what side of the desk are you actually sitting on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> because we have the, the if you're facing the desk, the left side is typically what we consider circulation. The right side is typically considered reference. And we try to direct people who have longer or more involved questions to the right side of the desk. That is also where our staff phone is. So reference is in charge of answering the phone, but mm-hmm. literally everyone who is trained to work at the desk works both sides. We sometimes switch in the middle of a shift. We, Everyone is trained to just kind of jump in if there's an empty spot and we need someone to fill it at a moment's notice. Yeah. So, so how does reader's advisory work in that situation? Because I imagine, I mean, there's all kinds of reader's advisory questions. Some are oh, yeah. fast and some are lengthy. Yes. And... It's yeah, it's interesting because everyone at the desk has fielded readers advisory questions and pretty much everyone at the desk, especially the people who are specifically part of circulation and reference, they're familiar with novelists, you know, Mm -hmm. they're familiar with basic readers advisory tools. But one actually one of the things that I noticed when I started working here because I've only I've only been working here about two and a half years but one of the things that people knew about me right away was that I really loved you know readers advisory I had done a lot of it previously and I I was always a very excited person a patron it's like I need a book recommendation I'm like oh my Yay. gosh I'm so excited <laughs> and then they also figured out that what my reading preferences were and so very frequently, if I'm working at the library and a patron comes in and they want a mystery or suspense recommendation, they go, hang on, let me go get Katie for you. And I just come bursting out of the office, just like my time has come. (laughs) So there are, there are a few different, so we have a few different approaches and I think pretty much everyone at the desk has at least a basic understanding of how to use some of these readers advisory tools. There's definitely a range of comfort levels. Yeah. So talk about that. Have you noticed that change since you got there or how have you, or have you been able to get people to not be terrified of those questions? It's a work in progress. And it's a work that has been put on the back burner for a while, A, because of COVID and B, because of just other priorities that have come up at the library. So Mm -hmm. unfortunately, that's an area I haven't been able to uh, do as much work with as I would have liked over the last couple of years. But one of the things that I 
that I really like to do is my staff members have all indicated that they'd like to become more comfortable with readers' advisory questions, particularly for genres that they're that they're not that familiar with. But one yeah. of the things that I really try to do when I am working at the desk myself with someone is I really just like to ch- just to chat with them about books mm-hmm. in just a really informal way, just like, hey, what are you reading? Or oh my gosh, I just finished this book last night. It was so good. And just through that, just making staff members more comfortable talking about books at a moment's notice and just, you know, sharing, you know, sharing our, our enthusiasm for finding something fun to read or expanding our reading horizons and getting into that kind of chatty mode, I think is going to be a big way to help our, help my, my staff members feel more comfortable talking to patrons about books because we we have a lot of regular patrons. We have a lot of avid readers mm-hmm. and our patrons really enjoy talking with us and forging those relationships. So I think that's something that we'll really want to, you know, when we are able to focus more on this, really lean into that. And when I, you know, when I talk even just kind of generally about readers advisory, I always tell them, I'm like, it's not, it's not about putting that exact perfect book in their hands. Right. It's about the conversation. It's about the interaction. And uh, quite frankly, it's about the enthusiasm. Cause even if I, even if I'm not able to hand a patron the exact book that they're looking for, just my, my attitude just coming in is like, yes, we're going to talk books and we're going to talk about how much we love reading and I'm going to find out what you like. And we are going to be so excited about this. It's, it's contagious. And the patron always leaves happy. And that's to me what a successful interaction looks like. And that's what I want to try to convey to my staff. Yeah. I think that's really smart to sort of model it in a low stakes way with them kind of on the desk without patrons there. Cause patrons, mm-hmm. no matter how uh, wonderful and friendly they are can be intimidating because they want they want something from you. Yeah. And I also try to do that if I'm checking stuff, you know, if I'm checking out books for a patron, if they've if they're checking out a book that I've had on my list or they've read or they're checking something out that I've read, I'll ask them like, oh, what have you heard about this book? Or, oh, mm-hmm. my gosh, I really loved this one. And a lot of times that'll spark a larger conversation. Another staff member might poke their head in to, to join in. And it really just becomes about that that fun interaction. And, you know, I, I like to remind my staff, I'm like, this is the best part of the job. I'm like, you're yeah. getting paid to talk about books. Yeah, this is what everyone thinks you do all day. So you might as well do it because you have formal reader's advisory training. You know, you have your master's degree mm-hmm. and I'm imagining most of your CERC staff doesn't. Mm-hmm. Do, is there any sort of reluctance? Do you think it's it's based on like, well, we don't have formal training, so we're, we can't do it? I don't know that it's so much that. I think it might just be, oh, this is someone just who has done it a lot. Because mm-hmm. for me, my reader's advisory education was almost entirely self-taught. Yeah. By the time I got my master's degree, I had, you know, I was already kind of established at my library as one of one of the big reader's advisory people. So it's it was something that I pursued on my own. And so that's something that I also just try to encourage with my staff that I'm like, it's honestly, I'm like, it's being aware of books, looking mm-hmm. at the the new books that are coming in. It's creating your own reading list and thinking about why you like the books that you do and being yes. aware of how to use the tools. But I, I'm kind of 
for me, it was, it was a from the ground up type of education. And so I, that's something else that I try to model for my staff that it's like, you don't need to spend money on webinars or conferences or anything like that. Just whatever bookish resources you have on hand, use them and, and use your, use your interest in books to, to encourage you to continue reading about books and picking stuff up and talking to people about it. I mean, I think it's, it gets framed as a a very a very intense high stakes type of interaction but if mm-hmm. you but i try to i really try to break it down to its core concepts and it's really just about talking to people about books if you can do that then you're doing readers advisory right and i used to tell my circ staff that they probably knew the collection best out of anyone out in the library cuz they mm-hmm. saw everything coming in and out they saw what was when there was an Agatha Christie kick, there's almost never an Agatha Christie kick. I don't know why I used that example. I was just going to say, they see the the books that that are frequently on hold. They they yeah. talk to the patrons. They know which books people are requesting the most. And so they can, you can use that as a springboard. Right. I mean, they are, they're the experts in your specific collection. Mm-hmm. So that's cool for people. I mean, I hope people feel that and feel empowered by that. Yes. <laughs> that's so interesting what you said about not really having too much formal reader's advisory training, and being kind of Mm self-taught. Were there any favorite things that you did that you thought were really useful? Like if somebody else, somebody is in a position in their library where maybe they don't have training opportunities, but they're interested, was there anything that you remember being like, oh, this is... Oh, yeah. And if your library subscribes to Novelist, Novelist gave me so much of my reader's advisory knowledge. And it, I mean, it has drastically expanded since I started kind of going through it. But when I discovered Novelist, I, well, I started just kind of exploring for my own interests, which I think Mm -hmm. is a great way to actually learn any tool, find something about the resource that you're using that, uh, that interests you or appeals Mm -hmm. to your interests and start to use it from there because it's all of a sudden going to, it's, it's going to have more of an impact if you're looking at it from that view. So I was using Novelist to find books that I might be interested in. And then when I discovered their genre reading lists and other themed lists and just kind of reading about genre conventions and author read-alikes, mm-hmm. I was just mesmerized at how much book information was available. So if you... Yeah, if if you or your staff have any um, want to really kind of get up to speed on readers' advisory, have them play around with novelist and tell them like start off by using it. Say, like, all right, I want you to find ten books on here that you think you would you would really like to read, and think mm-hmm. about why why it's interesting and how you found them, and that and that kind of a thing. And from there, I would also highly recommend that if you have staff that are interested in readers advisory and you have collection development journals like Publishers Weekly Library Journal Booklist, if yes, Booklist, <laughs> if see if you can get some of your staff added to the routing list for those journals as they make their way through the through the departments mm-hmm. for them to browse through, even if they don't have collection development responsibilities, but 
looking to see what's coming out, what people are talking about, where the starred reviews are coming from. You don't have to go through it cover Mm -hmm. to cover, but even just skimming it and seeing the covers or seeing some of the authors that are featured, that's already going to make you more aware of those titles as they come through your own library. Yeah. This was a year of sort of best laid plans being thwarted and more than a year, really. But do you have some plans for, I was going to say for the year ahead, for when we go back to normal, whatever that is, do you have like buy-in from your administration to do a lot of RA training or what, what's the future like for y'all at at Lake Bluff? Yeah, I think, yes. Oh boy. Yeah. It's, it's, it's been a year and a half. I'm just thinking about just all of the general plans that have gone by the wayside. Right. I know. But yes, our, our director agrees that reader's advisory is a really great service to offer. It's something that has always, I think, been on the library's radar as something to really offer, but it wasn't until I got there that I started being like, okay, we, we let's start, let's start bringing in some stuff to make, to make this more accessible for patrons. One of the things that we actually were able to do during, because of the pandemic was we were, we were lucky enough that our friends of the library were able to pay for subscription to spring share, which offers lib guides and offers other software packages like LibCal that we were able to use for curbside pickup, but using LibGuides, which I was familiar with from my previous job, I, even before the pandemic, we were talking about finding a way to get the funding to purchase, to purchase the subscription, which I know can be on the pricier side, but with Mm -hmm. LibGuides, we now all of a sudden had a way to create browse book lists and browsing opportunities for patrons digitally, which was really helpful when they couldn't come into the building. And so now that we're, I mean, we're, our library is basically open to our, pretty much our full range of services with the exception of in-person programming, but Mm -hmm. we're open to our full hours and patrons are really excited to come in and browse. And so I told my director when we did our evaluations after the last year, which was, that was an experience, but one of, one of the goals that I set for our department was one that I felt reasonably sure that we could accomplish regardless of how the pandemic played out was to increase our digital browsing opportunities for patrons. So mm-hmm. we've so we've been able to use LibGuides to help facilitate that, but obviously there are ways that you that other libraries can can do this even without subscribing to the Springshare software package. But we have right now I I every month I tr- I try to create an updated list in LibGuides with all of our newly ordered adult fiction and nonfiction, which is easier for us to do because we're a small library and so we don't order quite as many titles as the bigger ones. Right. But we have we have it set up to where patrons can browse to see the covers of what we've ordered. They can click on a book and it'll direct them to our catalog where they can place a hold. And it's, we're right now we're working on opportunities to promote this service because again, it was started during the pandemic. So it hasn't gotten a ton of word of mouth, but it's a tool that patrons can not only use from home, but it's a tool that we can use at the desk as well. And so that's something I'm hoping to, I'm hoping to expand on and get more staff members involved with. Yeah. So what kind of directions did you give folks to build a libguide? Because 
I feel like there's a lot of nuances to putting together a book list. Yeah, honestly, I think for especially for someone who um, if or if if that's something for that you're interested in getting staff members started with who maybe don't have a ton of experience doing it or don't have a ton of experience putting together a book list, I think a really great place to start is with lists that have already been established, like create, maybe you can use LibGuys to create an, a list of award winners or something like that. Okay, you don't yeah. have to select the books, they've been selected for you, but you can pay attention to the titles that are on the list and see where, you, where you're seeing them pop up in multiple lists. Or something like, I don't remember if it was the BBC, but like 100 books you need to read before you die or something like that. Right. One of those. Yeah. Yeah. And so that it it can get them comfortable, get the staff member comfortable with learning the ins and outs of just using a using a resource like LibGuys and creating it, but it also gives them, you know, an opportunity to learn how these lists are created. Why are they picking these books? Mm-hmm. And why are these books, why are more books showing up on these lists? And you can start to create connections with some of the titles that you see, and you can start becoming more familiar with the books that you already have in the library. If you, if you link the, the LibGuys gives you a, the ability to link the books that you add to your catalog records. Mm-hmm. So you, so you get familiar with much more familiar with the titles that are already in your collection. Yeah. Learn by doing. Exactly. Perfect. Honestly, I think that's the, that's one of the best ways to do it. Right. Cause then you don't, you're learning and practicing at the same time <laughs> mm-hmm. you have to practice or you'll forget. Yep. Kill two birds with one stone. Perfect. Well, that's about all the questions I have to dig into your brain about training people. But I'd also love to know what are you reading now and loving? Oh my gosh. Well, I am on a, I'm on a gymnastics kick right now from the Olympics. Yes. Oh my gosh. I I went out on a gymnastics kick back in 2016. And so right now I am actually rereading a book that I read during the 2016 Olympics when I was watching gymnastics. And that is The End of the Perfect Ten by Devorah Myers, which is a really, really interesting nonfiction book about how gymnastics scoring has changed over the years from the the perfect 10 system to this open-ended, extremely convoluted point scoring system that they have now. But it's such an interesting look at the history of gymnastics and previous Olympics and previous competitions that if you have any interest in women's gymnastics, it's such an interesting read. And then along with that, I also picked my other gymnastics theme book that I picked up was the Happiest Girl in the World by Alina Dillon, which just, I think, came out this year. And this is like the perfect book to read now that women's gymnastics has wrapped up. It's a real, it's a fictional look at the life of a young girl and then a teenager who competes in elite gymnastics, hoping to make the Olympic team. But it looks at all of the sacrifices to her physical and mental health. It draws very heavily from the events from the last few years, unfortunately, with Larry Nassar and and all of that stuff. So it does come with trigger warnings, 
But if you want a book that gives an inside look at the world of competitive elite gymnastics and also like name drops all the big gymnasts from the last 10 years. So you've they mentioned Simone Biles, they mentioned Gabby Douglas, Allie Reisman. And I just thought that was so much fun. I read this book in literally a single two and a half hour sitting. Nice. I just tore through it. So if you're if you're feeling if if anyone's missing the gymnastics buzz, those those are a couple of great books to keep it going for a little longer. I love how even in your personal reading, you're curating book lists for yourself. Oh God. Yeah. That's dedication, man. Yeah. Well, and I just, I don't know what it is about, about gymnastics. It, I, whenever it rolls around in the Olympics or some big competition, uh-huh. I just get the gymnastics bug big times. So yeah, I've, I got myself a little theme going. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much for chatting with me. And good luck with everything at Lake Bluff. Hope you guys continue to rock. Well, I, I certainly hope so too. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, I'm Phil Moorhart, Senior Editor of American Libraries, the magazine of the American Library Association. And this is Call Number with American Libraries. No, 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 wait. This is an ad for the Call Number with American Libraries podcast. Join me and the Call Number correspondents each month for conversations with authors, librarians, scholars, and more about topics from the library world and beyond. Past guests Sally Field, Bill Nye the Science Guy, Emmanuel Acho, Kwame Alexander, Roxane Gay, Rick Steves, Julia Alvarez, Wes Moore, Margaret Atwood, Ken Burns, Michael Eric Dyson, and many, many more have joined us to talk about everything from books and writing to library architecture and design. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just search for Call Number with American Libraries. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Heather Booth, back with more audiobook love. This time, let's talk about audio advisory. So this is like reader's advisory, but for listening. I think this is a tricky thing that can catch a lot of library workers off guard. If you're not a big audiobook listener yourself, or if you do listen to audiobooks, but you listen in a different way than your patron does, the request can kind of leave you doing that panicked, oh, don't think of an elephant dance that we sometimes do at the desk. So how to move smoothly from that awkwardness into a successful listener's advisory interaction. So my first advice is to just take a breath and remember that often all we need to do in any library interaction is just listen to our patrons and make sure they feel heard. It could be that they just want another person to be like, yeah, I think that one you already picked out is great. Way to go. You win at library. That's all, especially these days when our social interactions have been kind of limited and weird or getting weirder. Giving a patron the go-ahead is like giving them a gold star for picking out their materials. So hand out those gold stars like they're free. They really and truly are. It costs us nothing, and it gives us so much to extend our enthusiasm and kindness to our patrons. Okay, so you're jazzed up, you're ready for a positive interaction. So ask your patrons some questions about what they're looking for. Many of these questions are going to be like you're asking someone what they're looking for in a print book, but keep in mind some slight changes for the format. So ask things like, are you looking for a book on CD or something to download? Have you listened to any really good narrators that have stuck with you? Do you like author narrations? Do you like celebrity narrations? You could try to get them talking about narrations they haven't liked too, which is always a surefire way to get some very strong responses from seasoned audiobook listeners. 
It's also worth asking, how much does the narration matter to you? Are you more interested in the author or the story? Or are you willing to try a different kind of book than what you usually read if it has a really stellar narration? So at this point, if you're not a big audiobook listener yourself, you're just collecting information. You're not trying to match what they're describing to a specific title. So you take that information, and then next, you move into your audiobook area, either with your body, especially if you have an audiobook display area, or on the computer. So get those titles in front of you, and one is much more likely to light a spark, either for you or for your patron. If you have displays, scan them for ideas. It's not cheating, it's using your resources. And your coworkers probably put them out on display because they're worth listening to. If you're on the computer, check out booklist resources like our starred review or editor's choice issues from the end of the year. This will put some immediately recommendable titles in front of you. And since they're all a little older at this time of the year, they may actually be on your shelf. If you have a hard copy of booklist in hand, the great audio titles are easy to spot. Flip the magazine all the way to the back and look for the pictures. All of our starred reviews have a book cover, so those audio stars with their square formatted covers will just pop right out at you. Another book list resource for audiobooks are our feature lists. On the website, search Listen Alike or Top 10 or Listen Up in the title for the features section, and you'll find some great lists to get you started. In these lists and in the linked reviews, you'll start to see some useful terms pop up on repeat. Things like author narrated, nuanced, rich accents, believable character voices, full cast or well-paced. Terms like these are your audio appeal factors, and even if you aren't an avid listener or are unaccustomed to judging whether character voices are particularly authentic, these are the terms that you can convey to your audiophile patron. And a note as an editor, if the reviewer talks mostly about the narration and way less about the plot, it's a cue that the narration isn't just good, it's outstanding. Finally, if your patron is truly looking for the sure bets of the audiobook world, I humbly direct you to the reviews of the day. Most reviews of the day, or the compiled list posted each Monday from the previous week, are in print. But when an audio shows up there, take note, because it is really something special. A compiled list of all of last year's audio reviews of the day will be linked in the show notes for easy reference. There is way more to Audiobook Advisory than I can include in the few minutes here, but if you take away only one thing, let it be this. If audiobooks are part of your collection, and they absolutely should be, it's worth spending some time acquainting yourself with what they're all about. Their readership, their appeal. Try listening to part of a different narrator's work a couple times a week. You don't even need to listen to the whole book if you're way behind on your shelf care podcast listening. Just give it 15 to 20 minutes to get the flavor of it and move on to something new. Even spending some time listening to clips on publisher websites can give you a chance to start to hear the different kinds of narration that are out there just like skimming book jackets or paging through paper books can tell you a lot about an author's writing style. These little peeks into audios can help you hear what your patrons are looking for when they listen. If you're an audiobook advisory expert and this is all old hat to you, please drop me a line and let me know your tips and tricks so we can feature them in future shelf care episodes. Till then, this is Heather Booth, Booklist's audio editor, signing off. Say, do you like reading? Do you like hearing what authors have to say about their writing? then you've just got to hear the Shelf Care interview. It's a quick conversation between a book lister and a book person about their work, their inspiration, and whatever else we can fit in under 15 minutes. Hear Maggie Reagan talk to Ibram X. Kendi and Jason Reynolds about Stamped, Racism, Anti-Racism, and You. Hear Ronnie Curry chat with Susan Wadi Daraj and Simon Nurali about their series for young readers, Farah Rocks and Sadiq, or to Saba Tahir, Nicole Andelfinger, and Sonia Lau and their graphic novel, A Thief Among the Trees. 
Hear Julia Smith talk to Tracy Hecht about the Nocturnal series, and more. Can you believe there's more? You can find the Shelf Care interview right on this here podcast feed or wherever you listen to Booklist Shelf Care the podcast. Happy listening! All right, I'm here talking to Maggie. What's happening? Not much. It's Friday. It looks like it's about to rain, so. Yeah, at the time of recording. Who knows what day it is when people are listening to it. That's a great. I hope it's not raining. I hope it's not raining, but I hope it is Friday for everyone. Eternally. <laughs> Eternally Friday. But we're not here to talk about time and the vagaries therein. Let's talk about books. What are you reading and loving this summer? Well, it's summer. At the time of this recording. At the time of recording, yes. <laughs> and in summer, I can only read love stories. Oh. So that's what I'm literally and metaphysically surrounded by on this chair. I don't know what that's about. I don't know if it like goes back to to like a summer beach reading thing or yeah. what, but it's the only thing I'm ever in the mood for the second it gets, you know, steamy out. It also has to be a steamy in. Steamy on the pages. It does. Or you just need a happy ending. I think that I like that it being seasonal. Mm-hmm. Like you can other seasons you can handle difficult topics, but it's yeah, when it's like dark and moody outside, I, it's I maybe I'm just very susceptible. I don't know why this is all about the weather. <laughs> it's very susceptible to yeah. No, maybe it's like part of seasonal affective disorder. Seasonal affective reading. But yeah. Yeah. We diagnosed it. First identified on the shelf care podcast. Well, so anything specific you want to share? So last night I finished reading, this is partly for work, but primarily for pleasure. I finished reading Nicola Yoon's Instructions for Dancing, which just came out this past June from Delacorte. I'm sorry to say that this is actually my very first Nicola Yoon, even though I know she's a goddess among YA writers. Yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to get over it, actually. I cried for a really long time after partly in the middle of this book and then partly after finishing this book. So, but it's a love story. It is. Well, Uh (laughs) I think it, 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 no, it is a love story. I feel like it's not, it's definitely a story about love. Okay. Different from a romance novel. A little bit, but it is, it's, it's got a little bit of like a magical twist to it. It's about this girl who has Evie, who's pretty much stopped believing in love after her parents get divorced and after she kind of catches on to the fact that her dad was cheating on her mom. And she lives in Los Angeles and she kind of stumbles upon this dance studio. And then there's a little bit of a magical bent to it because she gets just by chance, she gets this magical power to when she sees two people who are in love kissing, she suddenly sees like the whole arc of their romance like from beginning to basically to the end which actually makes her for a time kind of more jaded about love because a lot of you know a lot of romances end right and she starts seeing how all of these romances end and she's like well screw love it's terrible but she also means this boy and well things happen from there yeah and it is just kind of like this really beautiful examination about love and what love is. And uh, there's one passage in it near the end after she has this one specific vision that made me have to put down the book and just kind of like sob into a cat for like five minutes. Oh, that's a good genre of book. Sob into a cat. It's a great cat yeah. crying books. Yeah. He lets it happen too. So <laughs> you need a good book cat. We'll have to um, post a picture in the show notes of your soaking wet, <laughs> sad cat. My cat kerchief. 
what was, can you say the title of the book again? Yes, it is Instructions for Dancing by Nicola Yoon. All right. That sounds like a good one. Do you have a, another one that you've been exploring or? I went back to just before this, because this is my, one of my summer reads is probably one of my first favorite love stories of all time, which is Gail Carson Levine's Ella Enchanted. Okay. Yeah. Which is you know, a classic Cinderella retelling from probably about 1997, which I feel like at this point I can read in about an hour and a half. And actually my copy of it is in, I think, three pieces. Nice. <laughs> so I have to just, you know carry the little pieces around but do you feel like you haven't memorized by now (laughs) oh I could yeah I could I could do the first couple of lines for you (laughs) oh my gosh can you yeah but that's really nerdy and really embarrassing (laughs) well they made a movie out of this out of this book a little while ago which is absolutely nothing at all like the I do love the movie but I don't think it had the movie is really silly and I don't think it has any associations with the book for me at all like whenever I read this book I'm like this book would be a great mini series why haven't they done that and then I'm like oh they did make a movie out of it but it's not it has nothing to do with the book but the book is the book is uh it's one of my favorite love stories of all time and it happens entirely through letters oh so the back half of the book is just them like writing long distance letters back and forth I don't know maybe it wouldn't make a good movie because there's like no drama to it at all it's literally just like letter writing back and forth and maybe this wouldn't be exciting to a lot of people nowadays but it is one of my like I think plot is overrated I think I agree <laughs> I mean like why can't feelings be the plot uh, well that's an E.E. Cummings poem oh is it mm-hmm. I should pretend I know that <laughs> Since feeling its first. Oh, right. I do know that one. I just, you know, yeah, you know it if you hear it. Right. Because I think one of the big ones. Yeah. So why can't all movies be in the E.E. coming school of plot? Great. Well, because they'd be much lower budget. What would we do with all that money? Um, make more feelings movies. <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what the problem is here. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks for sharing your summer reads. Yeah. I love a good comfort read and I, you know, Everyone knows I love a love story. Oh, yeah. I think everyone does, even if they lie about it. Right. I agree with you. And that's why I think we're changing the face of movie making after we're finished with this podcast. (gasps) Yes. We've devolved. (laughs) And that's it for this episode of Booklist Shelf Care, the podcast. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. Say, you could subscribe to Shelf Care on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Uncle Bob's Podcast Playatorium, and anywhere else you find podcasts. I made up that last one. If you like what you're hearing, consider leaving a review. Until next time, this is Booklist Susan McGuire signing off. Happy reading! Happy reading!